everybody talk about it outdoors live in the Wilson studio. I am your host, Alex DeBoard. As always, my main man, Nick Wilson, sitting over here beside me. We got a great episode lined up for you tonight. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. We've been kicking this one around for a bit. We're ready to get it underway. Y'all stay tuned. As always, back in the Wilson studio, Talk About It Outdoors brought to you by Southeast Wildlife Innovations and Buck Fever Seed Company in partnership with Grim Reaper Broadheads. And man, am I excited to be here tonight with you, Nick. How are you, buddy? Good. How about you? I am doing great. And I think tonight you are going to be elated with these guys that we got on the line. And I'm going to go right into it and not waste any time. The guys over at the Outdoors Drive podcast, they're doing some amazing things. They're bumping right up on top of their 100th episode, which is going to be a great thing. And I'd like to welcome to Talk About It Outdoors, East Coast Trev and Mr. Steven. How you guys doing? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for having us on, guys. Really appreciate it. How about you, Steven? You out there? <laughs> Did we lose you? Oh, no. I'm still sitting back doing my thing. So <laughs> thanks for having us. and. We're going to have a good time. That's right. That's right. Coming to us from Connecticut, it's where East Coast Trev's at. And uh, Stephen's up in the great state of Virginia. I'd say uh, the Rocky Mountains, but I'd be way wrong. I guess that's the Appalachians, right? Yeah, we're we're right on the rim of the uh, Blue Ridge Mountain right here where the farm is. And you right in the same mountain chain that we're in right down here in we North Georgia. We started off and you, well, you don't end it off, but where, yeah, how far we, is, we, you pick it midway, I guess. Yeah, it's about... Uh, that the actual start is about five miles from me, and I can jump up there on Blue Ridge Drive and take it all the way down to y'all. That's right. Yeah, you come down and have a good time with us. You bring it on the south side of that. The south side of the mountains are probably just as good as the north side, and uh, we're glad that y'all took the opportunity and the uh, accepted the invite to do a show together. Trevor, you and I kind of started talking back a few weeks ago. Bouncing around the idea of doing a show together, and uh, you know, you've got a storied history doing podcasts, and we've checked you out for a while, and it was something I was really excited for, for not only to get on and, and learn how you guys do things, but to just you know talk about it like we always do. Absolutely, we appreciate it, man. We really do. Do you looking forward to this? Yeah, and I got this is a question I thought of today. Do you do a lot of podcasts with other people, or is it kind of weird being in the being on the the other side of it? Because we hadn't done one with anyone else yet. So it's kind of funny that you say that, honestly. And it's it's been a motto of mine since the beginning of this, right? And it, there's so much room for everybody in, in this industry, right? And and I think if everybody kind of holds it together and shakes each other's hands and works together, like you know, like your episode might go out on Tuesday, our might go out on Wednesday. I think everyone should subscribe to us all and listen to us no matter what. And, and working with other podcasts, I mean, there's plenty of room for everybody, and I think that we can get better ideas and work together and, and go a lot farther. Yeah, and bouncing ideas off of each other. I know you and I have talked on the phone several times for 45 minutes, almost an hour, just kind of talking back and forth about how you do things, how we do things. And it's I, I never find the narrative to be the same in your show and the way that we do our show, and it's pretty cool to listen to the way people do different things. Yeah, and you can definitely bounce off different ideas and learn from each other. I mean, obviously, there's only so many different ways of doing things, and some people are going to have some of the same things, but it's all in the end. I mean, we all have the same motive. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Well, why don't we go right into it, Trevor? And you just tell us a little bit about yourself, because I'm sure some of our listeners out here tell us, um, you know, what you got going on, and then we'll go over to Mr. Steven and uh, let him talk about it a minute. 
All right. So, um, like like you had mentioned before, I mean, I started podcasting. Uh, oh man, probably what Stephen probably close to four years ago now. Um, yeah, I was on. I was having, about that time. I was on a podcast project, and it kind of narrowed it down, kind of pigeonholed us to just be bow hunting and not really who I am. Um, I'm more full outdoors, so I'm actually a fisherman by trade. Uh, that's what I do for a living. I've probably fished anywhere that there is to fish up here, uh, either commercial fishing, uh, charter fishing, pleasure fishing, you name it. I've caught probably anything and everything that there is to catch up here. Uh, so I, that's my kind of day job, I guess you could say. And then when it kicks off in around deer season, I got a little taxidermy business. I got the Demersa beetles, and uh, I do that on the side. So that's kind of my trade to kind of get me through the uh, the deer season. How about you, Steven? Oh, I'm pretty easy and straightforward. I, I grew up west doing the uh, the whole elk and mule deer thing most of my life and then spent a little time in the military, ended up over here on the East Coast and actually got into to podcasting pretty much through Trev and some other people we work with. Had a, a small project going that, you know, we got it going. It just didn't, it, it was the same issue. We were pigeonholed in a situation we couldn't do much else with. So as those all kind of, Ended me and Trev put our heads together and said, you know, we could do something pretty great here and cover a little bit of everything between both of our experiences. And uh, since then, we've just been letting it rip. Well, how did you guys meet? <laughs> Through the podcast, man. That's Through the podcast. Through podcast. That's yep. awesome. That, that's pretty cool. You guys put your heads together. And but this this was a different it. podcast at the time, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Is that project po- is that pod is that project still up and going? Nope. I gotcha. So it's gone and it's out of here. Yeah. <laughs> so just like Stephen, what part of uh out west did you grow up in? So I was born and raised in northern Arizona, up in the uh the small mountain area that no one ever hears about unless it's burning down. <laughs> and we were more or less just a an old cattle ranching family, timber family and I mean, that was life to us. We just went out and worked with our hands and got the land, and everything just kind of rolled from there. And then, uh, of course, 9-11 came around, and I got a little giddy and had to go do my thing. And when I got back home after that economy collapsed in, what was it, 2008, I got back in 11, and that whole area just shut down. So it brought me to the East Coast. First take going from West Coast to East Coast. What the hell did I get myself into? <laughs> Where did all this humidity come from? <laughs> well, I, the the weather thing wasn't so bad. Cause I, I was fortunate enough to get stationed in three of the absolute worst places you can get stationed in the military. And uh, so I spent four years down in Louisiana for Polk, which, you know, humidity around here is nothing. It's more <laughs> like what you guys got down there That's only right. at in a swamp. Right. And, uh, so that part was pretty easy to get adjusted to. What was killing me is the restrictions of land. You know, being limited to, hey, you got five acres here, you got 20 acres there. If you find a 50 or 100 acre chunk, man, you're you're in good shape. Because out west, man, if you pull your tag, you got your unit, you can drive all day and never see another soul. Yeah, that's pretty, so that, 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 that would my be a shot. That would be a big shock, a big change from going out to those areas. I'd never, never really thought about that, and I guess it's something we hadn't really brought up because we hadn't had someone transplant from. Most of the time, it's the opposite way around. They're in the east, they transfer west, not the west transferring to the east. So that's pretty, pretty neat. 
Well, if it wasn't for guys like Trev and some of the others along the way, man, I'd have, I'd have never got my feet settled and got into it the way I have. So, now do you know, there's s- good people on both sides that'll help you out. That's right. Now, do you spend a lot of your time uh, in the Virginia area, or do you travel for you know in the fall? Do you spend a lot of time out of state? Oh, primarily during the fall for me, I'll I'll spend a good portion of it here, kind of scattered around uh, central and northern Virginia. And we got a little bit of property down southern. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, then I'll also usually hit Pennsylvania for a couple of weekends, North Carolina for a couple of weekends. We've brought in the Ohio hunt that's kind of become our, uh, I guess, our internal signature hunt. That's the one we look forward to the most. But, you know, anytime we can get tags out west, we're headed that way. Unfortunately, draws didn't work in my favor this year, so nothing going out there. We're just kind of rolling with it, though. Yeah, I heard you talking about that on one of y'all's episodes that you you didn't get drawn out west, so it kind of where you want you were going for a mule deer hunt, right? Well, it was a, a mule deer and an elk hunt. If I'd have pulled both tags, both tags overlapped for ten days, oh, and wow. I would have been able to hunt either species. And I'm fortunate; I've got a brother who's got a ranch out there, so we've already got the horses, we've already got the pack mules, we've got all the gear and everything. We would have literally rid straight off the ranch, right up into there in public, and uh, just, just done it all the old-fashioned horseback, outfitter tent, the good old way. But now, now, you grew up hunting that way in the West, right? Yes, sir. That That's pretty cool. So talk to me a little bit about that and as far as when you were a kid and, and going back to that first route of when you got started hunting, what was the first few memories you've got of spending time in the mountains or, or packing in um, as a kid when you first got into hunting? Well, I'll be honest, my first, uh, I'm going to say hunting memories aren't exactly the hunt. I, I remember growing up and watching guys on TV, you know, and watching Buckmasters and seeing these guys shooting 15, 16 deer out here out east in the Midwest and going, wow, these guys just get to shoot everything all day long. So when we pull a tag, which is a hard thing to do in Arizona, you know, in my mind, that's how it's going to be. So when I did start pulling tags to get out there, it was like, wow, this is nothing like TV. But, yes, right. You know, of course, I, I was 11 years old when I had my first tag, and I didn't know the difference between hunting in the West and hunting in the East. And it, it was a bit of a an eye-opening situation at first. But the more we got into it, you know, the more I realized that, okay, there there is the difference. The older I got, the learning the spot and stock, you know, how do we – if we go up this ridge, our wind's wrong. If we take down through this bottom, we can actually get up and make a move on foot. You know, the little nuances that actually really come in real handy out here on the east. You know, because out there when you say you got to play the wind, it's it's 100% no bullshit. Whereas out here, you, you can't cheat and get away with a little bit in these hills. I'd say not <laughs> when you're spending that much time uh, in the – I guess in the flat, were you from Flatland, Arizona, and then going to the mountains? Oh, no, no. Uh, where we were, it's uh, just about 8,000 feet. We have ski resorts. Just we, about. You think you're in Colorado. God so, almighty, I didn't think Arizona had mountains like that. Of course, that's my ignorance. but no. Yeah, I, I think our highest peak out there is just under 14,000 feet. We averaged about 10,000 feet where we hunted. So. Well, 
this, some of the places you go up north around Flagstaff, you'll stay in that realm. But as soon as you drop off into you know Desert Muley and Ram and Tuesday country, that's when you're you're getting back down into the low threes. This probably didn't affect you at all, Stephen, or maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But the question I'm about to ask. Have you talked to any of your friends or family back in Arizona that now that they've banned the trail cameras, has that been an issue with anyone? I was actually in New Mexico when they passed that law. And uh, a, a couple of good friends, my wrestling coach from high school is a, an outfitter out there, uh, Corey Guide Service, uh, my woodshop uh, coach was a, uh, he, he's doing the same thing with a three guide service. They were pissed mainly because that's how they kept track of, you know, the movement and the locations of their trophy animals, especially up on the strip. Because it's, it's a long way to go. You can't just walk in and, you know, glass a field. Yeah, you're, you're 10, 15 miles in to get to these spots where the big boys hang out. Right. So they'd run cameras out there and set them and, you know, every three, four months go pull them and see what's coming through and start making their patterns and whatnot for their clients that way. But the locals, and even growing up when cell cameras got big, I think we we bought two that ran on the old C batteries that you might get 30 pictures off of before it's dead. And we went out and we put one out for elk and one out in the mule deer spot. And when we realized that you put it out there and it dies that quick, it wasn't even worth it. We quit using them. And that's how a lot of the local hunters out there, you know, we know where they're at. We know how to hunt them. I don't need a picture of it. We'll just get out there, glass them a little bit before season, make sure they're still in that area, and go hunt them. Now that, so it's really mainly just affecting the, the guide. So that Arizona strip that you made mention of, that's like a coveted zone for mule deer hunting, correct? <laughs> <laughs> I'll put it this way. If you want you want a chance at world-class, lifetime mule deer, Unit 12B is where you want to go. Yeah, I've heard and that. And because of that, it is so – the draw system there, one, it's hard and it's expensive. And you have everybody puts in for that unit. So your odds of getting drawn are about one in 100,000 right now, if I remember right. God. So you get in there, you better hold out for something at least 200 inches or better because they're everywhere. That's I've seen. I know Nick Munt drew a tag there, and and then Greg Ritz. I've watched him on Huntmasters spend some time there, and it's it, it blew my mind when you can watch in a spotting scope three, four, five, two hundred to two hundred thirty inch deer that are huntable that you could actually have a chance at getting on. That's it's got to be the the most incredible looking thing for a for a mule deer hunter. And I've never been fortunate enough to chase mule deer, but being in that situation, it's got to be something out of a storybook. It's it's absolutely insane. When we used to move cattle, bring them down off the top of the mountain in the spring, I mean, you'd, you'd come across the biggest side we ever found. One side was 174 inches. Good and, God. you know, it wasn't uncommon for us to find five or six sheds like that just laying out on these hillsides. And that's really kind of what got me jacked up to go after big deer yeah. you see stuff like that and I mean, it's hard not to get excited now when you first got to talking to steve and trevor and spinning back over to the connecticut side of things i know there's no mule deer there i assume there's none in connecticut was that something you guys <laughs> started talking about 
No, I, there's definitely no mule deer here unless they're in some type of high fence I don't know about yet. But, you know, there's no mule deer here. And, and no, I, it is something because obviously, so how it all had started, honestly, was we had Stephen on the original podcast. So I got to know him a little bit through there. And then, you know, when there was talk about me separating, um, I reached out to Stephen and was like, hey, man, you know, I see that you're, you got a little podcast going and it's not really going that well. Well, neither is mine. You know, I'd love to have a, another host with me and so on and so forth. And that's kind of where it took off. And y'all, did y'all go right into setting up a trip or a planned meeting or was it pretty much phone calls for a while before you guys actually got together? <laughs> kind of funny. Uh, you want to run them through three days of hell? <laughs> <laughs> so, so actually mine came to a screeching halt pretty quick uh, for legal reasons. And um, so I kind of just reached out to Stephen. We had already talked about it just a little bit. And I reached out to him and said, listen, man, this is about to go down and it's about to happen real quick. We need to do something. It's about to be Harrisburg um, in Pennsylvania and we need to get a show on the road. So three days. And when he says three days, that's no joke. Literally three days, me and Stephen spent on the phone from start to finish with just idea after idea after idea of what we were going to end up doing. Um, and we had originally come up with a podcast, East Coast Tradition. And that did not work out because we didn't want any connection with the previous podcast. So then we ended up coming up with the Outdoor Drive podcast because, it, you know, we're constantly on the drive. We're constantly going different places and doing different things and visiting different people. And we had this kind of envision to kind of, you know, get in the car, pick someone up, podcast with them and go hunting. Um, and that's, that's still our envision from the, from the start. Now, have y'all done much of that? Like actually going on site or is it mostly the call-ins, Zooms or whatever? Well, you have to remember, too, we kind of got slapped right in the face. I mean, as soon as we opened up the podcast, that COVID had come right in. That's right. Yep. yep. Uh So our kind of, you know, our idea of kind of doing that, we've kind of taken the run with some other stuff. And, you know, hopefully we can get back to something like that in the future. But, I mean, obviously, you know, we couldn't do that for such a long time. And we've kind of taken a little bit different of a path. So you guys started back in February of roughly February, January 2020? Yeah. Yep. And you guys are approaching. Yep. You guys are approaching hundred hundred episodes. That's pretty good, man. You guys have been grinding. Yeah. I. I mean, it's just it's just keeping that. So throughout COVID and everything, when everyone was kind of locked down, we went with the double episodes, uh, just to kind of keep everybody kind of busy and kind of you know just keep dropping that content. You know, people are locked down and so on and so forth, and not really knowing what's going on and what else better to do than podcast and kind of get that information out to everyone and kind of keep a positive vibe going. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great way to make a bad situation better and take take what you can and run with it. Now, did it shut down the fishing market for you during COVID? Uh, it's kind of funny. It's actually it probably boosted it. Really? Um, because everybody. I mean, at first, I mean, when they first started the fishing thing, uh, the season our season normally starts about May, and right before that, they kind of they limited us and they went half capacity on the bigger boats like your party head boats, and then we still could have six on our small boats because obviously everybody who lives in the same household or family or whatever. So they still let us go on with business. And the thing is, we probably booked more trips last year than we have in probably five years on the private boats because nobody wanted to be with the big group. Yeah. So they would just stick fast, and we would go out, and we fish three times more than we we have in years. It was a phenomenal year. Trevor, is this a family business you guys run? No, I just, um, so I, I started doing, I started in the fishing industry probably when I was about 15 years old. I worked in a bait and tackle shop 
And I left and went and worked for right around 25 to 27. I worked for my family's um, construction company. And one day my pop said I wasn't going to be home for turkey season. And I said, you know what, Dad? Then I quit. He says, what do you mean you quit? You're not going to be able to hunt and fish for the rest of your life. And I said, well, I'll prove you wrong. So I came back home, started the little taxidermy business. And my wife said, you got to get something going on in the summer. And I said, all right. So um, I said, you know what? I'm going to go back to fishing. And I went and literally just started working on every boat that I possibly could under the sun for pretty much virtually free. And uh, to kind of get my name out there, kind of learn as much as I possibly can. And I started traveling around and working on different boats and just putting my hand where I could. And then finally, uh, I found my forever home um, working with a good friend of mine who just started a pretty big uh, charter business in New England. Gotcha. Are you, are you looking to get your captain's license? So it's kind of funny you say that, man. From the day one, since the first boat that I stepped on and started working on, everyone's been begging me to get my captain's license. They said, get it, get it, get it, get it. And I could have gotten it a million one times over. But for me, I love being around people. I love the smiles on kids' faces. I love that, you know, they catch the biggest fish. They'll probably catch for the rest of their lives. Being down there, shooting the bull, busting chops. My, my place and home is on the deck. It really is. I got no business being up in the wheelhouse. And it's just not my, my, not my cup of tea. What, what kind of fish you guys specialize in? So the I'm um, the personal boat that I'm on right now, we specialize in trophy striped bass. Um, that is like what people come from all over the fish with us. Um, you know, right around this time, right when the full moon starts to hit here in July, that's when we start catching forties and fifty pounders on regular. And people just come and that's what they want to catch. They want to catch that once in a lifetime fish with us. Then the a forty or fifty pound striper is a once in a lifetime fish. Like conversations you and I had, I've I've been fortunate enough to be able to catch them in the rivers, but you're out in the actual sound or in the ocean catching them, correct? Yeah, yep. So we fish Long Island Sound, uh, Block Island Sound, and Fisher Sound, which is the Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New York um, kind of corridor um, up here in it's it's incredible man we get the migration that comes up through here and it is just next to none um my biggest bass was taken a while ago 67 inches 63 pounds i probably got oh man probably over 25 bass over 50 pounds underneath my boat probably that's my personal fishing Now, now do you guys do any like sure enough offshore fishing so i've done a ton of it um i've done giant tuna I've done shark, you name it. Um, our charter boat, we just got a brand new 60 foot Chesapeake dead rise that came out of Maryland. Uh, we bought it and brought it up here and we're starting to build the offshore business. So we do offer shark and tuna fishing also. So we do do that. Yep. That's pretty cool for those, those tuna. And, and I guess, uh, what is it? Um, the wicked tuna when that came about, yep. I guess that kind of sparked a lot mm-hmm. of interest in tuna fishing offshore more than it had in prior years. Oh, absolutely, hands down. And the thing is, I mean, for like Massachusetts, where they do a lot of that Gloucester and stuff, that license is like 250 bucks, and everybody and their brothers become a tuna fisherman. And it's just, it's driven down the the commercial drive. Okay. Um, they're just, they're just. I mean, I'll tell you this. So last year we killed the fish was 92 inches or maybe 86 inches, maybe I I can't remember somewhere in there, and we 
that fish ended up getting shipped over to Japan. We got $5 a pound for that fish. Oh that goes to God. show how much, yeah, that goes to show how much that the commercial fishing has been driven down because of the amount of people that are commercial fishing for tuna. You catch any fish like, you catch any tuna like that in Arizona, Stephen? <laughs> <laughs> no, sir. Biggest thing we ever chased was, you know, you could pull a three-pound brownie out of one of the lakes on a fly rod. You were the man. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like us. A 20-pound striper here for us is like, man, I've done it, or a 40-pound blue cat. Trevor, how oh, far? Exactly. Trevor, how far from uh, where you guys come out of the bay into the big part of the ocean is the uh, what do you call that deep water? The shelf. So, so I mean, like where we striper fish is only five to seven miles, and we're in the Strait Atlantic Ocean. We're out of the we're out of the sound. Okay. Um, and we fish Strait Atlantic Ocean. For us to probably get somewhere to offshore fish, you're talking probably offshore fishing. Unless I mean, we get sharks that come in tight. But it's probably 20 miles, 30 miles for us to get to anywhere that's, like, significant enough to really get on the, the blue the bluefin and the yellowfin tuna. And that's where that shelf drops off in the Atlantic so deep? Well, so before you get to there, I mean, so that's, that's what we call the canyons. And the canyons, is that's a little bit further for us. That's probably 80 miles to get to there. We have a lot of inshore stuff we call, like, Block Island Canyons, and there's some other smaller holes. Um, that are in between those, which are probably 30, 40 miles. And then you start to get to the shelf, the continental shelf, which is the canyon. That's about 75 to 80 miles to the first, to the first canyon. Well, that's closer than I thought, actually. Yeah. It, it's a run. I mean, it's, I mean, any type of offshore fishing is, is it's a scary thing. I'm not going to lie. I mean, every time I get in the boat, man, my, my anxiety kind of hits the roof because, you never know some type of change in the weather. I mean, we've been stuck out in some crazy stuff, and you kind of get a little nervous. I mean, anything past land 20 miles, I mean, things start to get a little, you know, they could go wrong and go wrong very quickly. A lot of people don't understand that with, with, with the ocean. And being in a bad situation really quick. Yeah. We oh, yeah, absolutely. We spend time down in the Gulf fishing with guys um, out of Florida. I've got friends down there that's taken us out a few times, and, I've always admired the way they fish, you know, not commercially, but just pleasure fishing. But they will always be two to three boats that run out together in case mm-hmm. something does go south. And you were then radio communication of each other at all times. And they always do that. They never go out, you know, solo just because of that reason. If something goes south in a hurry, you better be ready. It's kind of funny you say that. We had an instant uh, probably five or six years ago. Uh, commercial striped bass fishing out of Massachusetts and it was June 25th the only reason I remember is my wife's birthday and I remember having to call home and tell her that I probably was not going to make it home it was that bad out and that was the first time in my life that I've ever had and to be honest with you we weren't even that far from land but it it was just so bad that it took us what would be a normal an hour ride took us about five and a half just because the weather now, blowed in you on were gonna, you, you were going to beach the boat on that one, if I remember right. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of stuff going through our minds at that point. I mean, we were going to beach the boat. We were going to throw the life vest, the life raft. I mean, at that point, I mean, I was just sitting on the floor praying to whoever would listen. I mean, to be honest, because I, I just wanted everything to go right. And that, it was the first time probably in my life that I ever kissed a dock when I hit it. Um, and that day, they seen three great white sharks right where we were. 
Oh, Hell with that. Yeah, no, no. Just I'll be back in shore. Yeah. So let yeah. me catch him stripes. Let me, let me catch him stripes from the bank over here in the river where I'm fishing at. I'll be fine with that. Hey, hey Trevor, I heard you on a, I heard you on one of your other guys on the other podcast that you guys had. Um, I think it was like two past, and you said you didn't draw a moose tag. Was that for Maine? Yeah, it was for Maine. Yeah. Yep. I had put in for a moose tag and I didn't draw, which is, it's a tough thing to draw anyways. I mean, I know guys that have put in for 30 years and never drawn that tag. Mm-hmm. We got a friend that's of ours that got one uh, gifted to him from his uh, father in law. Was it his father in law or uncle in law? Uncle in law. Yeah. Yep. And now his uncle in law wants awesome. all of us to put one in because I guess it's what he told us. If you're not a resident of Maine, you can put in more times than a resident can. Correct. Yeah. So you can buy, your, you can buy, uh, I think, six or ten preference points. Mm-hmm. Yep. But the thing, so he put in for Maine and he got Maine? No, he put in, he didn't even put in for Maine. Her, his uncle in law had a tag and gifted him that tag. Wow, that's incredible. So, so I guess of according to Maine, if you if you draw a tag, you can sign it over to someone. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Maine can do that. Yep. For yep. sure. Yeah. Have you guys hunted Maine before? No, but I can hunt Maine. What do you say? I don't know. What'd you say? You broke up. I'm sorry. Oh, oh, yeah. No, I, we've never hunted Maine. I go up and shed hunt it every year for okay. moose antlers. Okay. Nick's been uh, this past spring up there turkey hunting with the same gentleman we're speaking about that gifted our buddy his tag. It it did re- it really didn't feel much different than Georgia to me, other than the mosquitoes. I don't know if you've been up there in the summertime. Oh my oh, yeah. word, the mosquitoes! Black flies, dude. They're way worse than Georgia ever thought about being. Mm-hmm. They're like pterodactyls up there, dude. I kept a I kept a, a thermosel around my neck. It, <laughs> I did. The guy I was turkey hunting with had a full, like a bee suit on. Really? Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, 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 mm-hmm. Did you guys get into turkey? Because it's loaded up there. Uh, we did. We went the very last weekend. We was up there in June. It was hot. It was it was tough hunting. Um, we should have killed some, but that being a right to hunt state coming from Georgia was very hard for us to feel like that we were legally hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't make it happen. We were the only there for three days, but. We got a better game plan going into the next year. Isn't it beautiful up there, though? It is beautiful, man. We were, we actually we were, we didn't do a whole lot of traveling. We actually drove in, we actually flew into Portland and headed about a, I guess about an hour and a half northwest, and then we headed towards the national forest towards uh, New Hampshire, and that was beautiful. Yep. That was beautiful country. That that reminds me a lot of North Georgia here where we're at. Okay. Yeah, so you didn't even go up into the North Woods or anything like where they would actually be moose hunting then. No, the guy that we went with, he has a cabin up there, um, just mm-hmm. right off up there off of Moosehead Lake, and he was going to yep. take us up there one day just to show us. But he said the mosquitoes and the black flies would be so bad it wouldn't be it wouldn't be fun. No, you literally crawl away. They yeah. literally <laughs> fly you away. How bad they are up yeah. there. Yeah, so but, we we stayed down lower south. So they he said they were that bad. Yeah, he said there wasn't many turkeys up there North Maine either, and and I don't know if I don't know if you experienced this, but the ticks are terrible. The ticks actually kill; they kill off so many moose up there because they're so bad. It they they just decimated the population. I mean, we were up there for eleven days shed hunting, and we probably found fifteen or twenty deadheads. Whether they were shed out uh, uh, moose, I mean uh, bulls, or they were 
just, you know, cow skulls. But, yeah, they were there was a ton of them. I couldn't believe it. That's what that guy told us, that that's the, the young ones were getting killed by all the ticks. They take some possums mm-hmm. up there and turn loose. I'll tell you what, man, like... I, I bet every night we got back to the hotel room, I would say we probably pulled five or six of it off of us, and we were spraying down and everything. I'd like to see you and Blaine searching each other for ticks. With the hair we got on us. As hairy like as a, you two are. We're like a damn brush pile anyway. <laughs> yeah, y'all are like two gorillas standing there. I can see y'all standing there. Do you see any down here? I can't look that far. Shit, they were so bad. They were crawling up the side of that guy's house up there, man. That, but anyways. That is awful. Yeah, it's just crazy. Even during shed hunt season, like if you're up there too late, forget it. I mean, you'll literally fly away with the black flies up there. They're nuts and even like come bear season, like the end of August, beginning of September, you literally those B C suits that you're you're talking about. If you're not wearing them, forget it. It's yeah. over. Yeah, God, money. That's can't an, stand. That's an. Is, are they're not that bad in Connecticut though? Uh no, we don't get them that bad. I mean, early September we get a little bit, but it's all not that bad. I mean, it's really not. I, I will say this though, um, going through some of that thick stuff, it was real ferny where we were at. And he mm-hmm. told he told me there weren't no poisonous snakes up there. So, um, I still had gators on, but I uh, <laughs> crawling through thick stuff like it, that. It ain't, Georgia, it, it ain't yeah. You're walking through Georgia, you're high stepping. That's oh that's yeah. And I stay here is because there's no poisonous snakes. You don't like snakes, Trevor? <laughs> no, petrified. You see he this, could, he'll come down here to Virginia to hunt, and he's he's going all right. What do I need to look for? Where do I see him? <laughs> well, pretty much anywhere. Are they Just bad? Are they bad in Virginia, Stephen? So, for the most part, where we're at, at least where the farm is, uh, we got a lot of rat snakes and things like that. But once you get a little bit higher up the mountain here, going into the Blue Ridge, you get into the rocks. We have copperheads, real heavy, right. especially down along the Shenandoah River. Uh, every now and then, you'll come across the timber, but. For the most part, it's just the copperhead. Now, you got some rattlesnakes in Arizona, right? <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> God almighty. Yeah, if you've never had a, a 14-foot diamondback curled up between your feet, you don't know what scared shitless means. T- tell us about that. Uh, how big? <laughs> 14 feet. 14-foot rattlesnake? 14-foot western diamondback. Fourteen. I heard you write one four, and I'm just kind of baffled by this. Fourteen foot. Yes, yes sir. Yeah, as, yes, as our yes, good buddy in South Georgia say, I'd knock a tire off a bead. Yeah, I'd it? knock a tire off a bead right there. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, sir, yep. Bob, not me. I, I, I just go ahead and scratch Arizona off the list for Alex. I ain't. Did I'm you, not petrified of snakes, but I don't like them. Did you run up on that one? No. So actually, how this one it actually run up on me, and I, funny enough, didn't notice. <laughs> I was. 14 years old we were up basically up on the kayabab because we ranched that whole area from the north rim of the grand canyon into utah and uh we had just brought a run of cattle in put them in the pen i got off the horse and was just leaning against the edge of the fence panel there just kind of taking it in and my brother comes up behind me and just says whatever you do do not move and i went oh shit he goes, on the count of three, jump, get to the top rail. I went, okay, this can't be good. And I looked down, and the sucker's sitting right between my feet. Okay. I grabbed that top rail, and I don't know how, from a no-bent knee, just straight, I flung myself straight up. He threw a piece of wood between the snake and me. The snake came up, hit the board, and they got to shooting. God, good Lord. And I ain't never been scared shitless again in my life. 
I guess <laughs> I guess not. Trevor'd still be running. Oh yeah. yeah. Yep. Probably you... four counties over before you said run. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta squeeze this yeah, one in yeah. here. I gotta squeeze this one in here. Did you do much turkey hunting out there in Arizona? Funny enough, I kicked myself in the ass for not doing it, but dang it. Growing up out in that area, even to this day, the people that are still out there, they all think I'm nuts because I'm I, I'll go head over hills to get after birds now. That didn't happen until I got out here on the east coast. Out west, the turkey hunt was you you bought a tag, and when you were out on your archery hunt, if you saw a turkey, you flung an arrow at it. Gotcha. You know, we didn't call, we didn't set up, we didn't roost birds, but you know, it didn't exist. And we'd be out there scouting, and uh, even during the early season mule deer hunt, we'd be on ridge tops laughing. You could hear the birds going nuts everywhere. And never did it occur to me, you know, if I wanted to hunt, we had plenty of birds. Right. So that that was really the downfall. Looking back, I wish I knew what I knew now, because you know we had a mix of we had some of the southern goulds, we had uh, some merriams out there. You know, I could have knocked off two different subspecies and not even had to fight for it. Right, because yeah. nobody turkey hunts out there. Well, and and Nick and of of our group and Cody does uh, quite a bit as well, but. Nick's a Nick's a huge turkey hunter and spent time in South Dakota this year and then went over to Maine and of course he tagged out in Georgia with three birds and so if if turkey hunting's your thing, Stephen, you and Nick need to definitely hook up and and and, and talk about that because he's a. He's, I'd love to go to Arizona. Yeah, well, it's not just me. I think Trev's even more addicted to turkeys than I am. Good. That's his, uh, God, here I was yeah. thinking I was going to get something good out of you boys, and y'all started talking about dang turkeys I could, already. I could, see a, I could see a dual podcast in the future, couldn't y'all boys? <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> oh, God, a, du- uh, a dual turkey podcast? Yep. Oh, God. Well, I don't even want to get into that. Well, I, that'll be a whole other episode <laughs> hey, if y'all like turkey I didn't say you was going to turkey hunt. You're going to be camp cook. <laughs> <laughs> hey i'll take that if y'all y'all talk about 14 foot rattlesnakes i'd be glad to stay in camp yeah me too i'm with alex oh <laughs> me that's great that that's the little untold part when you hear everyone talk about those strip bucks because that was right there where them strip bucks are okay so well, you're, right. you're watching your feet and looking for horns all at the same time that nice. is that is unreal to, to, to think about i can't even fathom that so I, I watched an episode the other day on meat eater and i didn't know this but i believe up in uh virginia they off the coast there they have the black deer is that correct steven yeah uh on the maryland side over on the eastern shore we got the thick of deer out there and oh. that's uh ever since that show the locals out there in the Blackwater absolutely hate meat eater <laughs> <laughs> i bet they do it, it was a wonderful hidden secret until that show really Oh yeah. Have you been out there? Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, what was it? Two, two years ago now, me and my wife went out. We on a whim took a two day hunt out to the Eastern shore. The first day we walked into a property blind hunting whitetail. I ended up shooting, uh, hey, he's decent. He's like a one twenties eight point, but you know, when you have one day on a property, you don't know and a eight point walks by you shoot him. 128 deer, that's pretty big though, right? Well, that was a white tail. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, I'm bad. So, that night we got done. I cleaned up that deer, got him in the cooler, 
And then we ran over to a buddy of mine's camp that has some private right there off of the Blackwater, uh, right where that, where they filmed actually. And, uh, we set up that evening and when they tell you these things are small, you don't contemplate, you don't understand how small they are. I mean, take the size of an average canine and drop three inches off it. When you shoot them, you throw them over your shoulder and walk out of the swamp. And I had a, a hind, which is a female. She came out, crossed, I looked, judged, and I was 25 yards all day. And I shot, and that sucker went right over her back. By the time I walked out there, she was only 15. Oh, wow. You know, just that size comparison, and they're in six-foot-tall grass. So if you're not familiar, it's hard to make judgment calls without a rangefinder. And then the following morning, my wife actually missed what would have been considered an absolute trophy, uh, 36 yards at first light, and she had what was, uh, referred to as, as a seven point out here on the east. You know, it's, you don't see them often out there. Right. You know, if you, you get eye guards and you get a fork on top, that, that's a pretty good size stick. Uh, and this one came out, had G1s, G2s, G3s, G4s, and had an extra. Oh, wow. You know, so it, it was just, it walked out and I'm shaking more than she is because she doesn't quite realize here it comes, it's going to cross right through this hole. Got her set up, ranged it, and uh, she went to shoot, and I don't know, she was maybe an inch and a half low, went right under it, clean miss. You know, and that was devastating, but just the fact of having something like that walk in front of us was absolutely insane. And getting to listen to them bugle out there in that swamp grass running around, you can't see them, but you hear them the entire time. You know they're right around you. You just you literally can't see them until they walk through a creek sluice or an old trail. Is that a limited uh, a limited entry? Oh no, no. You go buy that tag over the counter. No kidding. And you get what? Even four? Uh, so don't hundred percent quote me on this, but I know in Maryland you buy your deer tag and you buy your archery permit, and that qualifies you to shoot a buck and a doe, and a stag and a hind every day. Wow. Was that the closest? Because they kind of sound like an elk. Was that the closest that you've heard to an elk, I guess? Not that anything else. For the East Coast, yeah. Not that anything else out here sounds like an elk. but Right. And, and yeah, it's very, very similar to an elk. The the easiest way I can explain it, and I've tried to explain it, uh, in our intro, there's actually, we have a a hind or a, a stag bugling in it for that reason. But imagine a bull elk bugling. Now turn around and kick him as hard as you can in the balls and let it go up about 20 <laughs> octaves and let him bugle again. That's what they sound like. It's just a real whistle in the same tone as an elk would bugle. Okay. okay. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's that. Would you, is that you over there, Trev, doing a little, <laughs> little uh, sick of deer calling? Yeah. That's me. Yep. And that's basically what it sounds like. It's just with imagine someone with one. Steven, have you got down in the Smokies yet and tried to draw? Have they started releasing any of those tags yet? I think they did for uh, Kentucky. I don't know about any other states. They have for Tennessee and Kentucky. And starting next year, Virginia is actually going to have an elk season down in their elk management area. Really? So it'll be a, a limited draw. They've now got enough of a herd that's migrated over from Tennessee 
that they've actually got to start some herd management. So they're going to do limited draws here in Virginia, down you, in the Bristol area. Are you guys looking yeah. into doing that? Oh, I put in for them every year. Same with Pennsylvania, you know, mm-hmm. for the way their draws are set up. It's worth putting in. Your draws are extremely low, but if, I mean, you're on the East Coast, you ain't got to go out West, and I still get a hunt elk. Why the hell wouldn't I? Exactly. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, and Pennsylvania has some of the biggest elk, some of the biggest elk that get shot. Oh, yeah. They've pulled a couple of good 400 inches out of there over the past few years. They're, they're actually starting to overtake the West for big elk. Now, Derek didn't tell us that. Yeah, Derek ain't over oh, yeah. a full draw. That, he he left that part out. He just up and left. I guess he didn't want to hunt them. <laughs> yeah, well, most of the, the thing with hunting in Pennsylvania, the locals absolutely despise out-of-state elk hunters. Mm-hmm. They will try to run you out of town. And the shed hunters, too. They don't like shed hunters, out-of-state shed hunters. Like they, oh, yeah. It's bad, bad. If they find out you're out of state and you're looking for sheds, they'll, they'll cut your tires, break your windows. I mean, they will run amok on you and try to get you the hell out of there. That's, that's their territory. Wow. Well, so much for, uh, so much for Eastern hospitality. Oh, well, you got New York right up the road. There's no hospitality here in New England. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the trick is if you're going to do it, you drive to Pennsylvania and you go rent a vehicle with Pennsylvania plate. Yep. That's good. Good looking out. I'm not going to Pennsylvania One. elk hunting, but or shed hunting, but <laughs> I, I definitely. If anybody out there is looking to do that, make sure you go rent a car. Uh, we'll, we'll see if we can't get a look that up, Trev. See if we can't get a uh, rent a center uh, uh, sponsorship or uh, or one of these uh, United <laughs> Rental places or whatever. Maybe we can get a sponsorship from them. <laughs> You bet. Oh man, well that's great. Well, I tell you what, I want to I want to get y'all's take. And, and Trevor, I've I've talked to you a little bit about this, and you know your your first take going from Connecticut to Ohio and, and the hunting and the way that you've started doing it now with the saddle game, and and I heard you mention on the episode that uh that tether or the I think is it tethered that you're with and and you or is it latitude. Nope. Latitude. Latitude. They're making a, a big boy model now, Nick. So you're you're in luck on that. Trevor, you a big boy? Oh yeah, big boy. Two, well, I'm 260 now. I used to be almost close to 300. Shit, we can wear the same clothes, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I'm a buck 60 soaking yeah. wet, boys. Six yeah. two, 160. I'm I'm a tall drink of water. Strong wind. We got to ratchet him down. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. It's not always a bad pairing because. A big guy will keep you shady in the summer, warm in the winter, and he's always got food. <laughs> I, ain't, I ain't hugging up to him. We look like the number 10 when we're standing next to each other. I'm the one and Nick's the O. <laughs> oh, funny. goodness. Well, uh, you you know, you went into uh, you went into it on some of your episodes. And, and once again, and for anybody that's not following along on the Outdoors Drive podcast over on any of the social media platforms, make sure you follow along with them because they've got some great episodes. But going into uh, the Ohio hunting for you coming from Connecticut, what was it like? So, it, so I had gone down, obviously, I mean, that's my off season. So I had a little bit extra time. So we were supposed to go down for a week. And I called up Stephen a couple of days before and said, listen, I'm headed down the whole aisle. I'm sitting here and I'm chasing 110-inch whitetails. I might as well be down there trying to kill something nice. So I got down there a little bit earlier than Stephen. We had some rain, so on and so forth. And so I went down there with the, the Midwest mentality of hunting. And, you know, you're trying to find the drainage ditch, this, that, and the other thing. I mean, everything, textbook, you know, fence rows, whatever. And I was having the hardest time ever. And I called up Steven and I was, I, I was some type of upset. And he was <laughs> like, listen, Trev, 
just hunt like you would hunt back home. He says, you know how to hunt, just hunt, Trev, just hunt. And when he had said that to me, that's when it all just kind of, it, it really sparked something in me because I started hunting the way I would hunt back home and really getting in the woods and, and really hunting hard. Mm-hmm. And that's when everything kind of all came together. If I kept trying to hunt the Midwest way, I don't think I probably would have shot a deer, to be honest with you. It's funny how you come from a place like Connecticut hunting deer like that, just like we're coming from North Georgia, and we don't have a lot of overabundance of big deer. And if Mm -hmm. you apply the same principles that you do when you're hunting these deer in hard-to-find places, you get a lot better results out of it. Oh, absolutely. It's funny. As I've said for quite some time now, you put an East Coast guy in the Midwest, and we'll show you how to hunt. And and I know I'm going to get crap for that, for saying that, but it's the truth. I mean, we just hunt three times harder than a lot of the guys do in the Midwest. Or we have a different style of hunting, and it works very well out there. It does. You know, like we're about, you know, dead is bed. I mean, a bed is dead. You know, like getting in tight, hunting those those thick, nasty areas, and, and really using the topography to our advantage, right? And yep. when you get down in somewhere down there, you, I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty simple, man. Everything's in square corridors, and it's ag and it's wood, yep. and you just find those right woods, the, the right wood that has the right topography in it, and you'll find deer every single time. It seems like. Yeah, it's it's funny to hear somebody from you know how how far we are in geographic locations in Connecticut and Georgia, and hearing you say that it, it it's it's so refreshing to hear you say that because I, I i'm in a total agreement with you if you go from the south or from a state like connecticut where it's hard to hunt virginia the same way you put us in the midwest illinois ohio kansas iowa we going after them right and, th- and that's what we did we hunted aggressive we hunted real aggressive real hard and we got in there as deep as we possibly could and, and found what we were looking for, man. Like I, so we started hunting around the, what, Steve, I think the 25th of October. And we yeah, just got down there the 25th. I think I got down there the night of the 28th. I left after work and met you on site, went set for the evening. Cause the goal, my, and this was my goal was, you know, I've always wanted a Halloween buck. So that's where we set our time frame up. So I'll let you carry on from there. And we we probably would have both killed uh, <laughs> Halloween have. if we didn't both miss on Halloween. And <laughs> so we had hunted. I, the, I ended up killing my deer in central Ohio, but I was hunting southeast Ohio for, for quite some time. And that is more like it's a mixture of Ohio and everywhere that we're from. So there's mountain range in there. They're big. I mean, it's, it's no, it's no slouch in mountains neither. And we'd get up on those big hills and hunt there. And, and then there'd be ag in the, down in the bottom. And it was, it was amazing. And then we, then I would go bounce back and forth, depending on wind with places that we found, so on and so forth. And we would just, I would just find the doe bedding and just wait for them bucks to be searching. And I'd just sit there from sun up to sun down every day. And then I would see bucks. I mean, we saw tons of deer. Um, and just not get the shot. I mean, when you're mobile hunting like that, I mean, and like I had just said, I mean, we both missed on Halloween. And the reason why is because you go in there in the, in the dark and you set up in a tree, there's no lane, there's no nothing. I mean, you're just, you just get in a tree and you just hunt. And, and there could be some type of limb. There could be 
not get the right shot, they're not going to come in the right path. I mean, you're just kind of winging it. Right. Yeah, it's, it's completely pitch black when we were – I mean, we're setting up two hours before sunup in trees we've never seen, on property we've never seen. We just know that the right sign led that way, so we'd pick a place on the map and say, go there. Uh-huh. By the time the sun comes up, I mean, you have no clue what kind of tree you're in, what it looks like around you. You just know the sign looks good. Now, how long you guys been hunting there? Sorry. This this was our this was our first year hunting there. Oh, this was your first we, year. Okay. Yeah, we had gotten an invite from a good friend of ours, Bones or uh, Eric Smith. He invited us down. He he's been a diehard listener of both of us for quite some time, and he invited us both down to come down and stay with his his brother who lives there, uh, Eric from Tennessee, and he had been hunting there in the past. I mean, he grew up there, and uh, so we met him at his brother's place, and then. We kind of just started doing a bunch of e-scouting, and we were both all bouncing around trying to just find signs, and we would go in and we would hunt it. And it's kind of funny how Stephen was saying, like, in the dark, we would go in. Um, Stephen, so we had found some really good signs. Stephen had hunted it and had an absolute massive giant, giant deer coming on him. Two that day. Two of the biggest deer I've ever seen on the hooves on Halloween. Now, were you in a saddle too, so, Stephen? Oh, absolutely. That's all I've hunted for the past three years, and I don't think I'll ever go back to a stand. Really? Just because of the way I hunt, you know. And it, it plays into the whole story, being able to go, you know, move 100 yards. Makes all the difference in the world. So on Halloween morning, Trev, had, he had looked at a spot prior in the week and said, hey, fine, looks really good here. I would, I would work your way back in and set up somewhere in here. So I, I did that. I literally followed the map, went in in the dark, got set up in a random tree. And just as the sun cracks, I peeked over my left shoulder. And there it had to have been a 170-inch buck just standing there at about 60 yards, just, just grazing, hanging out. And no, couldn't have got a shot on him. There was a big log laying down with a bunch of dead fall in front of him, but you could see him clear as day. And I text Trevin him and I said, holy shit, you will not believe the deer that is standing in front of me. It's the biggest deer I think I've ever seen on the hook for Whitetail. You know, so we're all jacked and all day long, I'm a full day sit. And I'm watching and watching and I see, you know, 125, 130 inch bucks, does, stuff walking all around. But now I know what's in there. I'm, I'm not getting too excited. I want that. Right. So we get into that golden hour, that last hour of light, and I have a, a doe come out of this thick bedding that's about 60 yards in front of me, just off from where I saw that buck. She come out at me, and I'm tucked behind the tree, and I can hear another deer behind her, but she's now right below me, so I don't want to move and bust her. Because I'll be honest with you, the deer out there, you could be 40 feet in a tree and not moving, and as soon as they're in range, they'll look right up and pin you. I mean, they're pressured deer. So I was doing everything I could not to draw any attention. And as she turned and looked the other way, I peeked around the tree. And that's probably the second time I was close to shit myself. (laughs) (laughs) Because all I saw was stuff going in every direction. And I was able to slowly get the bow off, get everything set up, transferred the bow over my bridge because he was an offhand shot. And I peeked back around the tree and he was gone. And I was like, crap, he busted me. And I start kind of scanning the trees, lights going down. 
and I see him walking and he gets right on this trail that I'd been paying attention to all day. And he was walking right into a window at 30 yards. And I was like, done. Got the sight set, turned, got drawn. And just as I thought he was entering it, he stopped. I let that arrow fly. And I mean, it's that, that crap shot when it breaks loose, everything feels perfect. It's right. Arrows flying right. You're watching that lighted knock going right into the tin ring. And about four feet before it, I see that knock skip and go straight up over his back. Oh, my god! I had pulled the shot. He stopped a foot before the opening. And I happened to drop it right into an oak limb and skipped right over him. What a heartbreaker. And I text Trev and them, and I, I literally I wanted to just wrap my head around my friggin' tether and just hang myself right there. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and... And we ended up getting an official score. The deer ended up getting shot. One of the locals were able to uh, fill us in. But uh, I, I'll let Trev tell you the size because it still makes me want to hang myself. One, 187 and 5.8. Oh, my gosh. So. Mainframe 10, yeah. 12. I mean, just a big, big 10 or a. A big, giant, uh, gnarly drop time. If we went mainframe, you'd be a mainframe 12. But oh. all together. Based on my recollection and the picture I had to draw on the whiteboard at the end of the day because it was burned into my head, I, I estimate he was 18 points with kickers, stickers, drop tines, and the works. So you you go from that. Now, this is on Halloween, correct? Yes, sir. And you go into – now, you, you actually harvested a deer later on that year. Yes, sir. Trev went ahead and hammered business out. Yeah, and so what we did was after that had all happened and all occurred, you know, obviously, I mean, it didn't really matter who killed the deer, right? We can't. We were just all hunting, and we were we were more or less party hunting because it was just everyone worked together and just let's let's put something down. So right. we come up with the idea of when wind is good, let's get it back in there. And so the next day was it the next day, Stephen? Day after. Uh, day after that next day after. year, it was pouring down rain, so we went to that spot out by the lake and scouted and everything yeah so we were using the rain and scouting new spots as we went along and that's how i had found that spot originally and so we said well let's go in there and let's try and kill this deer i mean he ain't going nowhere there's a hot doe in there let's go in there and let's hunt let's hunt together let's spread it out and let's hunt so he went back to the tree he was at and he said trev head up probably 150 200 yards away from me you're going to see two cat eyes in the in the tree he said set up in that tree and it'll be on the edge of the bedding. And to me, uh, so what I had seen and what he had seen were two different things with two different bedding. <laughs> yep. So I, this is how heavily hunted this area is. I went in there. There was cat eyes in every tree within 20 yards. Of me. <laughs> <laughs> so I get up in this tree, and the wind is going. It's quartering away from me. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, away from me. And it's drifting into what I think is, or what I have told Stephen, what the bedding is, right? Because that's where the does have been busting out of. And I'm like, something ain't right here. But you know what? Stephen said it's good in here. There's big deer in here. We're just going to hunt it. Hopefully they come from the other direction. Right. Well, that that day, I didn't see nothing until about 830. And then the woods come alive. I seen more deer that day that were shooters than I've ever seen in my life. And them things, I probably, uh, probably five or six deer between 130 and 150. And they were all like, 
able to shoot. One of them, the wind had shifted right at the last second. It was 22 yards. The thing took and boogied off. The other one I grunted at, and he ran as fast as he possibly could in the opposite direction. That, And then that's when I kind of realized that there's some big deer in this woods. And so we sat there all day long. Steven, he didn't see nothing until almost nightfall, right, Steve? Like right before dark? Yeah, it was about that last 45 minutes of light. You had that one breakout you warned me of, which I never saw and ended up seeing a different buck at the exact same time. That deer was giant. That was another giant deer, and he was headed down towards Steven. So I said, Steve, I said, hey, Steve, I said, there's a big one coming your way. And all I hear is, and now we're pretty close, probably within 100 yards of each other, and I hear, whack! And I'm like, oh, he just shot one. He just shot one. And I just see this tail run by me about 75, 100, 150 yards out, just go blowing by as fast as it could. And I'm like, oh, he just smoked the one. And I looked to my left, and there was this little, like, six-pointer. And at this point, man, my frustration, I've already missed one deer. And I'm like, you know what? We need to punch a tag. I'm going to shoot that little six-pointer. <laughs> he pulled and a waddy. He pulled a waddy. Oh. I said, I, I'm going to shoot this deer. I said, I, I don't really care. And then I start watching him, and he starts crawling out of his skin. I mean, this, this deer would put his head to the ground, and he was, like, almost trembling. And he'd look up. He'd go back down. He'd look back up. And then I heard the woods just explode. I mean, to a point I have never seen nothing like this in my entire life. There was a deer, and he was just making havoc on these trees. And I could see him. He's probably 100 yards away from me, and he's just raking on every tree possibly. I mean, there is just stuff. It looked like it looked like someone put an A-bomb right down in the woods over there, and there's just stuff flying out everywhere. So at this point, I'm like, all right, well, what are we going to do? I said, you know what? I'm going to film this. This is probably the coolest thing in my world. Not Was there every moment in my life where I had said, I'm going to shoot this deer? So I just start filming it because it's just the coolest thing in the world. And he's grunting and making all kinds of noise and just shrapnel of trees just going everywhere. So I'm filming him, filming him. And he starts coming out on an, on an angle to me. And I'm like, he's going to pop out. He's going to be like 35 yards. I said, I probably should grab my bow. So I zoom the camera out all the way. And I grab my bow, and I'm like, all right, when he steps out, I'm going to stop him right there. Right before he comes into that lane where he would he would stop and me be able to shoot him, he turns directly at me. And at this point, I'm like, there is no way this is about to happen. He's literally going to walk right at me. And that's literally what he did. He walked at me the entire way until we got to the hole where that other deer was that I was going to shoot, and the wind had shifted to him. He's uh-huh. 22 yards. He goes to step over the thing. And over the stick or down tree, I stopped him right there and I let it rip. And this deer just pile drives. I mean, nose to the ground as fast as he could, just blowing through stuff. And I thought that I had heard him go down. And I'm like, at this point now, I had held everything and all composure of anything I possibly could all together. And then I absolutely lost it to the point of I was drooling that my mouth could not control because I am screaming at the top of my lungs. I just shot my life. Like, did you, hear, that, could you hear him, Steven? I, I could hear faintly. I, I knew the direction <laughs> he was in because it was not hard to get over to his tree afterwards. And, and the wonderful thing about it all, this is all on film. We have this episode up on our YouTube channel. You can actually watch this happen, and I can't tell you how hard it was to edit out his reaction so that it wouldn't demonetize. 
<laughs> I, I, no joke. I had to cut out 27 f bombs in his reaction. <laughs> I'll check it that out. Nuts. Yeah, I definitely will too. Have you and guys? Actually, uh, go ahead. I'll send you. I'll send you the unedited version so you guys can actually see what it really was because we could not put the regular, the unedited version online. We would there would be people knocking at our doors. Have, <laughs> have you guys been uh, videoing a lot here lately, or have you been doing it? Oh yeah, we we film anything we do together. We film okay. Mm-hmm. Everything we do, we're just to the point now when we're separate, we film. Mm-hmm. And now we've added in product reviews and a bunch of other stuff that we're doing on the side as well. Okay. It, I, I kind of set that goal for myself quite some time ago, and now especially with this, um, one hundred percent, I don't go in the tree without without the film. Um, if I can't, I don't. I say this, and I say this kind of lightly. It if a big deer was ever to come by, I don't know if I would shoot it if I couldn't film it. But if it really happened, I don't know. It could be kind of different, I guess. But, but yeah, so so I end up shooting this deer on film 100%. And, and, and thanks the Lord I did because if I didn't, we probably would be in a different predicament today. Um, so I had gone down, Stephen had come and met me, and we found half the arrow shaft. And there was no blood. Oh no! And yeah, so now I'm losing my mind, right? So I, at this point, I think this year is one fifty, one sixty, and I'm just beside myself. And we started following the blood trail, and I have half the arrow, but I knew a good bit of it was in there, but I didn't know where I hit him. I knew I hit him good, and I I did, but I was just second guessing myself, and we couldn't find blood, and I. I said to Steven, I said, Steve, I said, we got to back out. We got to go and check the film and just make sure before we start pushing forward. So that's what we did. And we hit back to the road and we had met up with Eric and there was another gentleman with him that was a local and he was standing there and he said, you guys shoot one? I said, yeah, we shot a good one. He goes, which deer is it? What deer is it? And I'm like, listen, man, I'm going to tell you this much right now. I am in a whole new stage of human being. I said, I don't know what to tell you. I said, you're more than welcome to look over my shoulder and you can see what deer it is, but I'm just, right now it's not the time. So he looks at it and he was like, that's, that's split G2. That's split G2. So he starts showing me trail cam pictures. That's when things got to reality. <laughs> and so we had gone back in. We realized that I had 12 ring this year. So we went in and we started to spread out and I started going what I think was the direction that he was going. Now, remind you where I'm telling you this, this is only within 50 yards of where I shot him. Right. And it's just so, so thick. It's like rabbit territory, like all briars and this, that, and the other thing. And I started to go to the left on one of the little like furrow trails and Steven's to the right. And Steven goes, hey, you got that spotlight? And he just watches me. I mean, at this point, he's like, dude, this dude is in shambles. And he's like, is that my spotlight? I'm like, yeah, Stephen, why? And he says, come over here. Shine it up here. And I shine it up. And all I seen was the white on his on his belly. Oh, man. And he was teasing me. He seen him. He knew he was there. He I knew he back. was, yeah. It was, I, we knew he was there for about four minutes. I'd seen him with a flashlight. And I, I me being the, the, the asshole buddy, <laughs> I let him stress and worry. And I'm poking everyone else that's with us going, dude, he's right over there. Let's see what happens. See if you can see him. <laughs> so you've just killed the biggest deer in your life. 
Oh, hands down, man. I never even. I mean, I've seen deer like that, but I've never, I've never even. Probably in the tree stand, I've probably never seen a deer like that that close. Never in my life. I mean, this is this will probably be the biggest deer I shoot for quite some time. Well, not free range, that is. Well, that's true. I, yes, you're right. We'll leave that to another day. But um, the uh, but yeah, it was the biggest deer that I I've ever shot. And when I went to him, it it got ground growth, not ground shrinkage. I couldn't yeah. believe. It. I was I was mind blown. It was mid seventies, right? What's that? He's mid-170s, right? Yeah, I've never got a real official score on him. I went kind of white on my scoring. I got 166 and 5A's, but I didn't get a real score on him yet or anything. But I don't really, honestly, it doesn't really matter to me. Well, the the old saying that I know you've heard us say on our show is mountain the memories, and it doesn't matter what he scores. You've, you've got a, a mount to look at and it's definitely a memory you can tell by the story and the way y'all tell it that it's it's something that's etched into your mind for and probably will be for for the foreseeable future mm-hmm. absolutely and, and the thing is i was in a euro mountain <laughs> and i told trev you do that i'm quitting the show right now <laughs> <laughs> it's over with oh man that is awesome well you you know guys we could sit here all night and go through the the stories that we could tell each other and everything and this this podcast i think was more about getting an introduction uh for our listeners to the outdoor drive podcast and just showcasing who you guys are and what you're about and there's definitely a a realm of passion that you both share a friendship that's been you know intertwined through a podcast but it's became much more than that and i'm gonna spin it over to nick and let him kind of ask his Famous final two questions to both of you, and uh, we'll see we'll see where it goes from there. All right. Who wants Let to go? Rip. Who wants to go first? We'll give it to Stephen. Let him have it. All right, Stephen. Oh, thanks, Jared. Hey, Stephen, give us a piece of advice that you'd share with someone. Oh, biggest piece of advice. That's actually fairly easy, in my opinion. Is you just got to go do it. You know, don't quit making excuses. Quit getting around that it's hard or I'm not ready for it or I need to train for that or get practice or grab your balls and go do it. Just jump right in because that's the easiest way to learn and get better. It's the real thing. What are you most thankful for? Uh, most thankful for, I am most thankful for my wife because she's hands down the most supportive person and she gives me the grace and leeway to do all the dumb stuff we do. Good answer. All right, Trev. What's all right. A, what's, a, what's a good piece of advice you'd give someone? Man, and I give this advice a lot, and it's, it's something I, I truly and utterly live by. You know, you're only given so many sunrises in life, and you gotta just you got to take it by the horns and just live with it, man. You're only, you're only here for such a short period of time. And you got to leave that stamp on everybody. You know, it, it's not not what you do here, but it's it's what the legacy you leave behind you. And you know, just just go and, and chase those dreams. And I mean, anything's possible. You know, you just got to go out and do it. You really do, no matter what. Don't don't say you know, yeah, I'm going to do it down in the future. Just do it now. Just go and do it. I mean, there's no time like tomorrow. Great, answer. Trevor. If I didn't have another question, I'd let you drop the mic and we'd end it right there. <laughs> <laughs> but I got one more question. I got one more question, man. What are you most thankful right for? Man, I'm just thankful. Honestly, I'm thankful for the life that I'm able to live. I mean, there's no. I, I think about it every single morning when I wake up and see the sunrise come over the ocean. I mean, I live one of the best lives of my life. 
I mean, there is nothing. If I was to leave tomorrow, I am 100% thankful for everything and the people that gather around and I call my friends. Boy's got a big heart. Yeah. A lot of passion in there for both of you guys. Yeah, you can tell um, that very much. I want to thank you guys both for coming on the podcast. Um, Steven, I want to thank you for your service to our country. And, um, man, I just thank you guys for everything you're doing. And thanks for wanting to do this with us. And thanks for having us. Yeah, it's been, it's, really it's, hot, it's been, it's actually been fun talking to a, a different podcast, you know? Yeah, it has. And, and, it's, and it was like, different. I didn't know what to expect going into this. Yeah. And like you said, Nick, I mean, big hearts. And we go right back to our, our old Doyle Lane saying, good people find good people. And I honestly believe, you know, thank you for reaching out, Trevor, when you did and, and you know, pinging me and us getting on the phone. But, because I could definitely see us all sharing a camp one of these days together. Well, we're going to have a big camp at the friendships we've made across just this short time we've been doing it. Yeah. Absolutely, guys. And that's, that's the power of the podcast, man. We we all support each other and help each other along the way, and it it leads to nothing but greener pastures for all of us. Isn't it? And, and one of the things that I live by, honestly, is, is honestly – I'm stealing out of old book, and when some people hear this, they're gonna they're gonna give me crap for it. But man, we do it for the greater good. It really is, and 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 we like you guys say, you know, good people find good people because it's the truth. And and like I said in the beginning, and I'll wrap it, I'll I'll bring it back to that is, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of space for a lot of people to be doing this stuff, man. There's plenty of people. I mean, there's every day in the week, and everybody should listen to every podcast, and every podcast should work together. I mean, it's just the way it should be, honestly. I think that mentality is more of our generation, Trevor, you know, our age demographic. And the older guys, they kind of competed against each other. And, and then you've got the younger crowd that, that fight and argue. And, and our generation, you know, the 30-year-old, the kind of 30 to 40-year-old generation that we're all living in, that's we try to make it better because we see the bad that came before us and we see the bad that's coming after us and we're trying to make it better for that generation that's bef- that's coming after those guys. Amen, man. And I I'm you know, I'm you know, thankful that uh thankful we were able to get this done on on our side and uh for everybody that's that's listening to this one, you know, make sure you go over and check out the Outdoors Drive podcast for uh mine and Nick's segment with these guys. They get to punch uh, punch right. Punch the buttons for us uh, on there. We'll call it part two. This is part one of um, our uh, merger and, you know, definitely going over to a part two soon. But before we go, you got one more thing? Yeah, one more. I, I, did, I forgot to mention, did you guys want to give a shout out to anybody? Yeah, or anything? absolutely. Go ahead, Trev. Do your thing. I mean, I, the only shout out that we have is honestly, you know, everybody who listens. I mean, there is, there is nothing in, in the people that got us in the podcast. And I mean, a huge shout out to them. I mean, I, I could honestly, if I could thank one person, it would be working class bow hunter. I mean, they, they're the ones that paved this road for all of us, to be honest with you, you know, the, the, that generation of podcasting and, you know, just, just that, that, that drive for everybody, man. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Nick and I both listened to him before we started ours and we took a, took a turn to make our own pathway, just like you guys have done. And, and I think that's the, uh, all all roads lead to where we want them to go, and and I think we're all headed down a good path that they'll eventually end us up in the same. It'll end us up in the same camp sooner or later for sure. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna take this time and go over to our shooting you straight question. As I told you, uh, Trevor and uh, Stephen, I want you guys to answer this, and uh, I'm gonna play play the segment here, and uh, after that, we'll drop a question from one of our listeners. 
Oui. This week's Shooting You Straight segment is brought to you by Williamson Brothers Barbecue of Canton. Stop in off exit 16A of Highway 575 or call 770-345-9067 for all of your barbecue and catering needs. Yeah, and this week's question, uh, I'm going to go into it. I think it's one that will fit fit us all well and having us all on here. Um, it's from uh, Mr. Jeff up at Buck Fever Seed Company. He submitted a question to the group, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let us all get a piece of this one. And uh, he said, what's your favorite day in the woods? If you had one day to choose to go to the woods, what date would you choose? And I think that's a good one for all of us because we're in such different places. So I'm going to start with you, Trevor. Oh, man, got to start with me, right? I think, honestly, my favorite day in the woods is November 7th. Good day. I think that is like my favorite day, not only because there's no better place to be and think about the veterans, but also it's probably one of my favorite days to deer hunt because that's when rut is in full swing here. Good, good answer. Good answer. How about you, Steven? Uh, it's a tw- tough question. I kind of go back and forth as I've touched in on the show. I'm, I'm a big fan of Halloween and I've had that, that drive to really hammer that down. But I, I want to say, Sentimentally, November 11th is a great day for remembrance and other things. It's, it's the day that I experienced my first big incident overseas, uh, got wounded and got to go through that. So any day I get to spend that in the woods, I really get to sit back and just appreciate everything I have. So between the two, I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say Halloween mainly because I've spent a lot of time really trying to disconnect from associating myself as a wounded vet and redesigning myself as an outdoorsman, as a mentor, as a guide, as a coach. Man, what a great answer that one was. How about you, Nick? Opening day of turkey season. Honestly, I mean, it's hard not to say every day. I mean, every day is, that you get to go out in the woods is a good day. Um, of course, turkey season would be, you know, opening opening day. You're looking forward to it. But I don't know, man. Like you, like you said, Stephen, it's, it's hard to pick one of those November days. You know, I've killed a decent deer on like the 12th and the, I believe the 15th. My dad loves November 11th. Um, so it's hard to pick out one of those days. So November 10th. How about that? November 10th. Split the hairs. Well, there you go. You stole my thunder. I was going to say opening day of both seasons. So. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! Any opening day is a good answer. Hey, any day, any, any day, day is good. But any opening day, yes, yes you right. get that passion in there. You prepare yourself for it. And if you're hunting in Georgia opening day, you got a you got a lot of dedication anymore. It's hard for me to go when it's 95 degrees and the skeeters right. are still out so, so thick. But now, hey, that being said, do y'all go out there and hunt opening day in Crocs and shorts? No. I hear that's the trend down there. I don't. I, I'm not. I can tell you what. I ain't walking <laughs> well, around in shorts and Crocs in these woods. Uh, you just heard that snake story a minute ago, and I, now that I know there's 14 foot rattlesnakes crawling around, I'll probably be in an armored leg suit. Before we started this podcast, we were putting our bows up. We had shot a little bit before we got on, and and I looked over at Alex and I said, "If it's this hot opening day of deer season this year in Georgia." I won't be going because it's it, it got up like ninety two here today with like ninety five percent humidity. So you ain't, yeah, you, you ain't gonna catch me out there. 
Sept- that was the same up here. Same, same, same weather. <laughs> September will be here before we know it, though. And, you know, that's, that's I guess that's going to be my answer, and I'm going to close that one out with it. But as I said, the Outdoors Drive podcast, East Coast Trev, Stephen, you guys have been great. We're so thankful we got this done. We're so thankful you guys come on. Can't wait to see what friendship comes from this and the future that it brings for us. Hey, we may bump into you somewhere down the road for sure, and I can't wait for everybody to check out all the amazing content, you guys. Go over to Instagram, check them out, the Outdoor Drives Podcast. You can find them on any of the social media platforms out there. Go over to YouTube, and you can see a bunch of their review videos, and you can catch that amazing hunt that uh, Stephen and Trevor talked about because that was a really good one. So thank you guys so much, and uh, we'll be in touch real soon. Absolutely, all right. Really appreciate it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank y'all much. We'll talk. See you guys. All right, everybody. That was, uh, hey, the Outdoor Drive podcast. That was good, man. I enjoyed it was, that. It was great. I really enjoyed talking with them. And, uh, man, I can't wait to see what comes from that. I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, I meant that, what I said. Let's go. Let's go to a camp with them somewhere. Man, we going to, like you said, we're going to have to. We're going to have to We're book a, a big warehouse or something, <laughs> a big dome or something. To get, to get everybody together, and wouldn't it be a blessing, though, to get all these people together? Golly. At least a few of them. Bring the full draw boys in. Bring the outdoors drive. We got the blue collar guys. We got the boys over at Pine Thicket. Hey, bring them Some, all in. Somebody's going to have to set us up a place, boys. We need to get one going. But like I said, we appreciate everyone for tuning in tonight. Nick and I really enjoyed this episode, and we can't wait to – do it again really soon, and uh, y'all come back and be with us when you can. So for everybody here at Talk About It Outdoors, we want to thank you for coming and being with us again. And remember, smile as you go, and don't forget, mount the memories. <laughs>